Hello, everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. A few southern cities showed the same patterns. In Houston, the proportion of black women unemployed was twice that of whites. A study of unemployed in Louisville, Kentucky, conducted by the State Department of Labor in the spring of 1933, found that a little over 42 of the black women, in contrast to less than one-fourth of white women, were without jobs. More than three-fourths of the black women wage earners in the survey depended for their livelihood on domestic and personal services, but the Depression had thrown 56% of these workers out of work. Those black women who did find work were exploited by having to work long hours in poor environments and at inadequate pay, while women workers in general were often forced into the most dangerous sectors of an industry without any concern for their protection. This was particularly true of black women. And the Women's Bureau reported an especially great increase in accidents among them during the Depression. And just as women earned less than men during the Depression, black women earned less than white women. In cigar and cigarette factories, the median income for white women in 1930 was $16.30 per week, but only $10.10 for black women. A survey of wages in Georgia in that same year revealed that 90% of the women and 21% of the white women earned less than $10 a week. 35% of the black women and 10% of the white women earned less than $5 a week. Here is a description of how females in Philadelphia managed. One woman went along the docks and picked up vegetables that fell from wagons. Sometimes fish vendors gave her fish at the end of the day. On two different occasions, the family was without food for a day and a half. Another family did not have food for two days. Then the husband went out and gathered dandelions, and the family lived on them. The effects of the Depression were also seen in the accounts of one to two million more or less permanent migrants riding the rails. Other rail riders are hobos. More than 145,000 were homeless girls and women. We are roaming the country in search of work, our food, and shelter. During the fall of 1931, hundreds of homeless women were sleeping in Chicago's parks. Some of these women are mothers and have their children with them as they lie on newspapers exposed to the night air. By 1932, only 114 of the unemployed were receiving any form of relief. In New York City, families lucky enough to get relief obtained an average grant of $2.39 per week. In most places, people got only a little food. Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. writes, 
that in 1932, the average relief stipend was about 50 cents a day per family. In relief, however, just us on the job, the black families received less in local and state government's aid. Had black and white unemployed workers not joined forces in a militant struggle for work relief, mostly under the leadership of the Communist Party, the task of mobilizing the unemployed was undertaken first by the Trade Union's Unity League, T-U-U-L, formed in 1929 with William Foster as secretary. After attempts by the left-wing militants to work within the AFL had resulted only in expulsion and frustrations, the Trade Union's Education League, T-U-E-L, had been a propagandist and educational organization, whereas its successor aimed at organizing outside the Federation while continuing to bore from within. The T-U-U-L established a national women's department, organized women's commissions on trade unions, and held trade union conferences for women workers. But the first task undertaken by the T-U-U-L was that of organizing the unemployed. In conjunction with the Communist Party, the TUUL began early in the Great Depression to organize the jobless into groups that were known as councils of the unemployed and later as unemployed councils. Women workers, moreover, shall be entitled to unemployment benefits to the same amount as that of male workers. March 6, 1930 was designated as International Unemployment Day by the Communist Party throughout the world. Under the slogan, Star of Our Fight, the unemployed councils in the United States issued a call for a nationwide demonstration on that day. On March 6, hundreds of thousands of unemployed in some 30 cities and towns demonstrated in the largest series of unemployment demonstrations in the U.S. history. Women were actively involved in each demonstration and were victims of police attacks. A New York World reporter wrote of the violent clashes between police and demonstrators at New York City's Union Square where between 60,000 and 100,000 were attacked by police. Demonstrators and bystanders were slugged and kicked, blackjacked, and knocked down by mounted police in the frantic 15 minutes that followed the policeman's charge on the straggling parade of placard carriers. Women were struck in the face with blackjacks, and many of the women were kicked as they lay on the ground or hoisted to their feet and booked or slapped by the policemen. One of the women fought savagely, howling curses, and a blue coat seized her around the shoulders with one arm and punched her with his free hand. A detective ran up while the policeman held her, crashed his blackjack into her face three times before a man dragged her away. On July 4th and 5th, 1930, at a meeting in Chicago attended by 1,320 delegates, one-third of them women, a new national organization was established, the Unemployment Council of the USA. One of its aims was to fight for passage of an unemployment insurance bill. It proposed that until regular employment was provided or received, all unemployed persons, regardless of race, color, or creed, should be given the regular average wage earned by them while employed but in no case less than $25 per week, plus $5 for each dependent member of the unemployed worker's family. Another provision was that women entitled to social insurance payments on account of maternity shall receive payment for four weeks prior to the date of giving birth and four weeks subsequent thereto. 
the Unemployment Council conducted regular demonstrations in towns, cities, and state capitals. In most instances, the demands were similar. An end to evictions, improved relief in cash and in-kind, state and federal aid, and special provisions such as winter and children's clothing. Demand for women include equal insurance of full wages of unemployed men and women workers, equal unemployment insurance for single and married workers, no dismissal of married women, free municipal lodging houses for homeless unemployed women, free medical care for unemployed pregnant women, and free hospital care during confinement and two weeks thereafter for mother and child. Matilda Molin Tolley, a Mexican-American leader of the unemployed in Los Angeles, recalled, We would move the furniture and people's belongings back into the house emptied by the eviction notices. The landlords had a hard time since it cost $3 for a notice after the third time. After three attempts, the landlord had to stop. When relief was cut, in the Chicano community, we had the big black casket symbolic of what would eventually happen to these workers. This we displayed for several days until the relief was restored. Sharp struggles against evictions also occurred in New York, Chicago, Detroit, and other cities. It is estimated that in New York City, these tactics succeeded in restoring 77,000 evicted families to their homes. On March 7, 1932, at a demonstration of unemployed workers at the Ford Motor Company in Dearborn, Michigan, organized by the TUUL and the Detroit Unemployed Council, four unemployed marchers were killed by police. In December 1932, during the fourth winter of mass hunger, the second nationwide hunger march on Washington was organized for the unemployed. Following an enthusiastic send-off in the Bronx Coliseum, 1,200 hunger marchers, 400 of them women, left for Washington to present their demands to Congress for enactment of the unemployment insurance bill. On December 4th, some 3,000 marchers arrived at the outskirts of Washington, where they were met by police who conducted them to an isolated street for almost three days. The marchers were kept confined to the one street. No one was allowed to communicate with them, Truckloads of food gathered by housewives associated with the Council of Working Class Women of New York City was turned back by the police. There were neither water nor sanitary arrangements until the police finally permitted the construction of a toilet. There were no cots and no beds, although many sympathetic Washingtonians had offered their help. On December 6th, Having obtained a permit to parade through Washington, the 3,000 demonstrators marched into the city down Pennsylvania Avenue. They were halted two blocks from the Capitol, except two delegations of 25 each, one chaired by Williams Reynolds and the other by Herbert Benjamin and Anne Burylak. The Reynolds group met with Vice President Charles Curtis, who refused to allow Reynolds to read a statement, but after an exchange, promised to lay it before the Senate. The other committee met with House Speaker Garner, who made a vague promise to see what he could do about the demand for unemployment insurance. The delegates then returned to the waiting marchers. 
who retraced their route back to the camp. Then the hunger marchers began their trek home. Dora Day, a Catholic, was also shocked because while women's organizations, pacifist groups, Quakers, and a few other religious organizations supported the demands of the marchers, no official Catholic source did so. And she thought, far dearer in the sight of God, perhaps, are those hungry, ragged ones than all those smug, well-fed Christians who sit in their houses are in fear of the communist menace. How little, how puny my work has been since becoming a Catholic. How self-centered, how ingrown, how lacking in a sense of community. Five months after she returned from Washington, Dorothy Day published first issue of The Catholic Worker, a newspaper that has continued down to the present. Many blacks who participated in the hunger marches noted that the communists were usually resolute in resisting the racial barrier set up by local authorities. In the towns through which the marchers had to pass, no discrimination against Negro workers, equal relief for the Negro jobless. These are similar slogans were displayed on banners carried by the marchers, both black and white. In the spring of 1933, St. Louis was the setting for a strike of women workers that aroused nationwide attention. This was the strike of the women nutpickers against starvation wages and discriminatory practices. Pecans grown along the Mississippi Valley regions were shipped by boat to St. Louis, where the nuts were picked, sorted, weighed, and packed. There were 16 pecan factories in St. Louis, employing some 3,000 women to do the picking and sorting. Seven of these were owned by the R.E. Bunston Company, founded in 1895 by R.E. Bunston, and headed in 1933 by his son Eugene. Between 85% and 90% of the labor forces in the pecan industry were black women. They worked nine hours a day, five and a half days a week, from 6.45 a.m. to 4.45 p.m., with 15 minutes for lunch. The few white women, most of them Polish descent, working from 7 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., with one hour for lunch. A handful of men, black and white, were employed as foremen, weighers, crackers, dryers. The men also handled the packing and shipping of the nuts. The women worked under sweatshop conditions. Bathroom facilities were primitive, and even though this was a food industry, there was no health standards. Shelling the nuts caused a great deal of dust, which produced continual coughing. While the nut meats produced permanent stains, so that it was necessary to wear an apron to prevent damage to clothes. The cost of aprons was deducted from the weekly wages. Black pickers were paid 34 cents a pound for pieces. The whites were paid 24 more per pound. During the year 1931 through 1933, the women had their wages cut five times. One black woman who had worked for Funstein for 18 years had averaged $18 a week in 1918. In 1933, her top weekly pay was $4. Another received wages as low as $6.34 a week. 
A special investigator for the American Civil Liberties Union reported that black women workers were earning from $1.59 to $2.50 per week with an average of $1.30, while white women were getting $2 to $5 with the average of $4. When about 20 women had brought together and had asked for outside support, William Settner, a local communist leader and organizer for the Food Workers Industrial Union, an affiliate of the TUUL asked the sign to help the women organize. After several more meetings, the women themselves decided on the following demands. One, an increase in wages per lot for halves and four cents for pieces. Two, equal pay for black and white workers and an end to discriminatory practices against black workers. And three, union recognition. A union shop Local was established and an executive committee elected. Soon they had 100 members out of the 200 employees at Funston's West Side plant and a few more in other shops. On April 24, 1933, a committee of 12 was elected to present the demands to Eugene Funston. The women waited three days for an answer, meanwhile extending their organization to other plants. On May 12, Having heard nothing from the company and convinced that further delay would only weaken their forces, they decided to call a mass meeting to vote on a strike. When their demands were rejected, 900 workers walked out. On the second day, workers in two additional Funston shops and two other factories, the Liberty Nut Company and the Central Pecan Company, joined the strike, bringing the toll to 1,400 women. On the second day, too, most of the white women joined the strike in picketing of the strike plants by both black and white workers. Blondie Rosen, a young Polish worker, was the strike leader for the white women, but the overall strike leader was Connie Smith, a middle-aged black woman. It was she who coined the strike slogan, We Demand 10 and 4, and who told St. Louis Press, We want to be paid based on 10 cents a pound for half-nuts, and 44 cents a pound for pieces. This would give us an average wage of $6 or $7 a week. We think we are entitled to it as well as other folks, and we should be entitled to a wage that will provide us with the food and clothing. One shop after another was called out to join the strike. Each shop elected its own strike committee and its own captains of the picket line. Picketing began every morning at 5, and the women brought their husbands and children to march with them around the plants. As the conditions under which the nut pickers worked were made public, the community responded generously to appeals from the strikers. Four strikers had with them unopened pay envelopes with wages covering a four days' work. Of eight that were open, two contained $2 and the other $1.50. The shocked members of the Social Justice Commission voted to support the strike. On the fourth day of the strike, Eugene Funston offered the workers an annual increase in wages and assured the white women that they would gain even more if they returned to work. Pleading that higher wages would cause the company to work at a loss, Funston said that this was all he could afford. St. Louis Argus, however, pointed out that with the present price of nut meat averaging 40 cents per pound, it would take the mind of Einstein to calculate the vast amount of profit the producer of this commodity would receive at these wages. When the first offer was rejected, Funston offered 750 per 25-pound box of shelled nuts, but this too was rejected by the strikers. 
He then began to import strikebreakers from outside the city, who were escorted into the plants by the police in patrol wagons and taxis. The strikers reacted angrily, smashing two police cars and taxi cabs carrying strikebreakers. Fifteen women pickets and union organizers were arrested, and 1,500 women, black and white, marched to City Hall in the test. They asked Mayor Bernard Dickman to order the police to stop protecting strike breakers and to protect the rights of peaceful picketers. They also called on him to assist in ending the strike. The mayor responded by appointing a committee to assist the union in seeking a satisfactory solution to the walkout. On May 23, 1933, the Central Strike Committee met in an all-day session with Funston, his attorney, and the mayor's committee. The company offered 90 cents per 25-pound box of unshelled nuts, the equivalent of 8,004 halves and 44 pieces. With the abolition of any differential between white and black nut pickers and recognition of elected shop committees, the Central Strike Committee voted to accept the offer, and the strike at Funston was ended. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.